Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with dog behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. My name is Kayla Fratt, and I run Journey Dog Training. Today, I'm joined by my regular co-host, Ursa, of Canis Major Dog Training. Hey, guys. Today, Ursa and I are diving back into our hot takes. Um, we did this last time, and we made it through about a, th- a third of our list of hot takes. So we'll uh, we'll see how many we get through today. We're going to do the same format where the original original person pulls a topic out of a hat, basically a virtual hat. They get three minutes, and then the other person gets two minutes to add or refute, and then we move on. We will try to stick to that timeline, as you all know. We're not great at timelines here, but we'll do our best. <laughs> um, good job last time. Like we we got yeah. a little sloppy there at the end, a little uh, a little chatty, but I think we did a pretty good job, all things considered. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as a quick reminder, you can support the podcast through Patreon for as little as three dollars a month. Patrons can submit questions, which we answer either at the end of each episode or for episodes like this. The Patreon hot take suggestions are actually just mixed in. So you can join the conversation at patreon.com slash canine convos. We also wanted to start reading aloud reviews from Apple Podcasts this week. But when I went to see um, any most recent reviews, our most recent review was from January of 2020, guys. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you guys want to go ahead and drop a review in for us, that would be highly reinforcing for us. We are trying to engage with you guys more. Can we just pretend that all of 2020 didn't happen, if that's the case? Yeah. Like, or we maybe we've just all. been talking into the void and we don't have any listeners. Oh, no. <laughs> nobody nobody in the last year wanted to bother. Nobody loves us. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Um, <laughs> I know that's not true. I've got lots of nice messages on Instagram. but um, Yeah, I've gotten a lot of in-person feedback, too. Add the reinforcement back in for us, guys. Well, yeah. we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so so what's our first hot take? I will get a timer going. Timer ready. All right, is it, are you are you starting us off? Why don't you start off? I've done all the talking so far. Okay. <laughs> all right, our first hot take is outdoor dogs. Okay. So, am I am I on? Is it time? You're on. Awesome. All right. So, you know, I think I might have added this to the list and the reason is um, you know, I have an extensive shelter background and this kind of ties in with one of the hot takes we addressed in our uh, part one, which was requirements for um, adoption. And there are a lot of people who believe that dogs should not live outside um, under any circumstances, that they are indoor pets and it is not humane to keep them outside. Um, I disagree. I think that um, with, with some parameters, I think it is perfectly humane to keep dogs outside it's not my preference. My dogs live inside. However, my dogs are pets. Um, they're not working dogs and I don't have any restrictions around my household, such as like my kid being allergic, for example, that would require me not to have dogs in my home. But I do think that, you know, after all dogs are animals. Um, they evolve from extremely hardy wild animals. And I think as long as their needs are met, um, you know, food, water, shelter, And we're not expecting dogs that are not equipped to handle certain weather conditions to be outside in certain weather conditions. I don't personally have a problem with it. I know when people think outdoor dogs, they immediately go to the image of like ratty, skinny dog on a chain 
um, in the sun with no water. And I know that that happens and that is not what I'm Mm -hmm. talking about. That's obviously not okay. That's neglectful. But, um, I have a client right now whose dog lives outside because, um, it's a livestock guarding dog. Um, (laughs) and she lives on a working farm and she wants her dog to be outside to be able to alert her to like coyotes or people coming up the driveway or whatever. It's the dog is, has a job that requires it to live outside most of the time. He does come inside and hang out with them. She does bring him in if the weather is extremely harsh. Um, but I've also known, you know, working dogs that didn't come inside when the weather was harsh. They had a shelter that they could go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, especially as someone who also has lived on a farm, um, multiple different farms throughout my life, um, and, you know, livestock live outside and you provide them with adequate shelter. And I don't really see it any differently for dogs, as again, as long as they're equipped and their needs are met. Um I, I don't think it's inhumane to keep a horse outside with adequate shelter. And I didn't bring my horse inside when the weather was bad. <laughs> so similarly, I think, you know, a husky can manage just fine outside or a great purities or whatever. So um, that's my take on it. You know, as always, we want to keep the welfare of the dog in mind and make sure that your needs are being met and, and we're not missing something there and we're giving them options to make themselves comfortable. So definitely your turn. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I really want to add here is to just kind of underline, yeah, as long as their needs are being met. Um, and I would add in kind of enrichment needs being met in there as well. Um, mm. You know, making sure that they're not bored to tears, bored to howling, bored to destructive behaviors, yes. because I think that is a, not an uncommon uh, oversight where, you know, the dog is physically healthy but mentally, emotionally enrichment and interaction wise may not get what it needs. Yes. And with that, I think there's something else that, you know, you hinted at, but maybe we didn't quite say explicitly enough is that there are certain breeds that are going to be not just physically, but also like behaviorally better equipped for this sort of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a great Pyrenees that has been bred for generations and generations, not to be a pet, but to work outdoors as a livestock guardian dog is probably going to be happier out there and isn't necessarily bred to want to bond with you the way it wants to bond with its flock um versus you know a you know a toy breed that has been bred for Mm -hmm. generations to want to be around you not only are they physically far less suited to be to an outdoor life but emotionally behaviorally they're less suited to that yeah that's a great point and i i know that like i I personally still have a hard time with it. I don't like seeing dogs that live outdoors all the time unless they're working dogs. You know, if you've Mm -hmm. got a working ranch and your border collies live in the yard or live in the barn or you run huskies and, you know, you've got 30 huskies because it is your job to take tourists out. Of course, they don't all live in the house. So I know, (laughs) like, emotionally, I still have a hard time looking at, like, uh, actually, my old family doctor had a pair of Gordon setters, and I used to dog sit for her, and they lived outdoors most of the time. They did come inside, but pretty much only when supervised and when being interacted with. Mm-hmm. And that always made me a little bit uncomfortable, even though someone else that I also dog sat for had huskies that lived in a very similar situation, but they were working huskies. And again, they had like 30. So even though like rationally, I think I'm on the same place as you, I think sometimes like I'm right there with people who still get uncomfortable when they just see like, mm-hmm. you know, someone's family pet living outdoors versus a working animal. 
Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of an aspect of like, well, why get a dog if, if as a pet mm-hmm. and a companion if they're just going to live outside all the time and you're never going to interact with them? Yeah, I think that is something I struggle to understand at times. Although I will say almost every time I've had a conversation or learned more about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. That situation makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, mm-hmm. So, Yeah, yeah, it's very contextual and very, you know, dependent on what the details of the situation are for sure. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Cool. So um, our next hot take, uh, similar to one that we've talked about already, but different enough that I think, you know, we'll have some different things to say about it. So it's you, Kayla, you're up and it's sonic bark deterrence. All right. Um, (laughs) I don't know enough about the specifics of how these work to have a really nuanced opinion of them. I don't know whether or not a sonic bark de- deterrent will go off if t- I turned it on and then, um, I don't know, my neighbors are playing super loud reggaeton. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how good they are at determining the difference between that. And that would make a difference for me um, because I would be really concerned about something that was easily set off by external noises that were not the dogs barking. Um, I know I've I've heard and seen that happen with bark collars that go off when the dog um, brushes the bark collar against a bowl that it's drinking from. Mm. So given that I did, don't know that and I did not look it up ahead of time because we're doing hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I have spoken to someone about these, I have I've erred on the side of, you know, we want to treat the reason your dog is barking. We want to address that issue. We want to then positively teach the dog something else to do meet the dog's needs so that it doesn't feel that it needs to bark um and similar to a citronella collar i have concerns that if niffler was barking and i had a sonic bark deterrent going barley would be getting punished just as much Mm -hmm. um and that is a huge issue for me if you've got more than one dog in the home so if you are at risk of eviction due to your dog's barking you have one dog um and this needs to be changed today I don't think a sonic bark deterrent is the fit is the option I am most concerned about. You know, I think I could right. see a situation in which I would sign onto it, but if you if you have any other options, and especially if you have more than one dog, that they're just not something I could see myself ever really recommending. Um, but as a last resort, I you know I'm not going to say never. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you know any more about the, the specifics of how they work. If you want to add anything or so. I mean, a little, I don't have a ton of experience with them. Um, I've had a couple of clients over the years that have tried them out and um, generally with very little success, to be honest. Um, And so my concern with them, I think you hit the nail on the head. In general, I'm not a fan of devices that try to automate training. So I think that we owe it to our dogs to be present in their training so that we can assess what's going on and give the proper feedback and not rely on a device to, to make a guess. Because like you said, if another dog barking sets it off or if the neighbor's playing or dog barking on TV or whatever, we're punishing our dog for no reason. That's not fair. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't feel that that's humane. Um, and, and I think, like I said, we owe it to our dogs to be the ones that are doing the training so we can, be, so we can ensure that we're doing it properly. And that the, you know, their emotional welfare is being taken into consideration and protected at all times. Um, so I don't, I'm not a fan of devices that try to automate training to begin with. And then I also, um, I don't love using 
sound is a deterrent because I think it can really, uh, you know, I think most people would say, well, it's not that it doesn't, it's not harmful or it's not that bad or it's not that aversive. But to be honest, like being startled is really aversive on a mm-hmm. psychological and a physiological level. It's throwing that dog's body into like fight or flight mode for a second, just like you are when you're startled by something. And, um, and I don't think I want a dog that's in that constant state of like worrying about something startling happening. Um, and then I also don't want to create sound sensitive dogs. And if the dog is already sound sensitive, totally. I don't think using a sound aversive is a humane thing to do. And if the dog is not sound sensitive, I wouldn't want to risk making them so. So I'm generally not a fan. I would actually rather see if somebody's going to choose an aversive bark tool. Um, I don't know that sound would be at the top of my list. I mean, I don't like any of them yeah. really, but I actually think there's an argument to be made that that's one of the worst ones. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. And I'm going to take my 50 seconds back to add in two things okay. that I thought of as you were talking. <laughs> um, right in the bank. So one most of the time, if your dog is barking when unattended, it's either something related to separation, anxiety, isolation, distress, whatever you want to call it, or some sort of startle response in the first place. So punishing your dog when they're already dealing with, you know, some sort of anxiety or startle from something going on is just ethically really hard for me. Hmm. Um and I know that that could be the case with pretty much any, anytime your dog is barking there, it's trying to communicate something or it is in distress pretty much always. But I think you made some good points about why sound is particularly aversive. And, you know, with any bark thing, I have personally watched dogs wearing bark collars, um, bark at something, get shocked by the bark or get shocked or, you know, citronella or sound or whatever. And then the dog yips in surprise and then mm. the aversive they get dinged again. again and i've watched this happen to the and several times i've watched it to the point where one of the people that i was with and this was when i was in a working dog kennel and there were multiple dogs around we actually like it happened so many times in such fast succession that we ran over and removed the collar from the dog because God. yeah like you know it That's was just okay. It wasn't okay. And if we hadn't been around to see what was happening, that this dog was panicking and vocalizing with panic and then being, you know, an aversive was applied. And again, this particular example was with either a shock or a vibration collar. I can't remember which, not a sound collar, but it was horrifying to watch. And if we hadn't been around, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just, ugh. yeah, it's awful. Uh, and- you know, again, that's the risk when you use a tool that tries to automate it for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because the the sound device doesn't differentiate between a whine and a bark, um, yeah. or a, a a yip of surprise and a bark. Um, and I'm sure yeah. some of them kind of do. I know my furbo can actually tell the difference between when Barley is whining, howling, and barking, but all my furbo does is send me a text. So I can decide whether or not I need to shoot treats at him or go home. My Furbo isn't doing anything aversive to him. So I'm okay with my Furbo trying to figure that out. I am not okay with, especially with the way that even my Furbo's technology is. Mm-hmm. If my Furbo is trying to make decisions for me, that I, I would not feel comfortable with that. And even though my Furbo, all it's doing is throwing treats. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. All right. Let's get back all on right. track. <laughs> back on track. Okay. I think I'm up, right? And our next topic... Ooh, this is a big one. 
<laughs> Raw diets. Raw food diets. Okay. Super, super controversial. And I actually have clients ask me about them really often. So I have a little bit of a unique perspective as a trainer because I did work um, with Hills Pet Nutrition for about a year and a half. I did behavior and nutritional research for them. And um, of course, Hills is the company that makes Science Diet, which is a very well-known yet controversial kibble because kibble is controversial. Um, and I no longer work for Hills. I haven't for years. Um, I'm, I'm not on their payroll. Um, but I but I think it's a fine food. And I think that um, by and large, dogs should eat what they thrive on. And I think that's just like with people, I think that's extremely individual. And so I personally have nothing against raw diets. I do have something against the idea that a raw diet is the be all end all perfect diet for every single dog in every single situation um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think for some people it's cost prohibitive. It's not cheap, especially if you have a large dog to buy fresh meat as well as like awful and supplements and whatever else that your dog needs to stay healthy on a raw diet. I think that um, it can be really messy. I know personally as the parent of a five-year-old, I would not want my dogs dragging their raw chicken leg around the carpet that he's going to then go plop his Legos down on and play with five minutes later. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, that for me, it's not a good fit for my lifestyle. Um, and I, and I think it can just be really labor intensive to make sure you're getting it right. So having said all that, I, I have no objection. I just think that there are a lot of people in the dog nutrition world that have opinions based on their feelings and not based on nutritional research per se. Um, <clears throat> I think that, um, again, dogs should eat what they thrive on. And for some dogs that literally might be kibbles and bits. And for some dogs that might be only raw duck hearts. And you just have to find kind of what works for your personal dog. But, you know, what I do know is that if you start asking around, everyone is going to know the right answer. Whoever you talk to, their answer is going to be the right answer. And so, you know, you really have to try to find experts, people who are educated in nutrition, um, ask about their education because education can be biased. Um, you know, if you get your certification from the College of Raw Dog Nutrition, obviously that's going to be a little biased. <laughs> um, but, you know, use common sense and use good judgment and see what your dog likes. I think dogs deserve to eat a food that they enjoy and that they thrive on, um, whatever that is. So, um, yeah, that's kind of that's my hot take on that, which is actually fairly lukewarm, but <laughs> yeah, has gotten me in trouble before with, with people who feel very strongly about things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of like, like a lot of the raw feeders that I have interacted with are like borderline militant about it mm -hmm. and very judgmental. And that has really turned me off of like the raw community. Mm -hmm. That said, I like feeding my dogs as much fresh, real, whole food as I possibly can, similar to how I do for myself. Their main diet is made up of kibble, um, but I also do some freeze-dried raw. I do some dehydrated raw. I do some fresh raw. I do some fresh cooked. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a big old variety. Um, Same. And I think if you really want to know more, your vet is the first place to go. Yes, your vet's educational and a lot of the research in this is funded by dog food companies. But if you go out to the raw world, everything that is 
all the research or, you know, infographics or whatever are created by people with financial stakes in raw food as well. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to get good information out there. I do, you know, I like feeding as my main food, something that has gone through AFCO feeding trials as, you know, as much as I possibly can, you know, that is for better or worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that doesn't mean I won't feed my dog something that hasn't gone through it. Absolutely not. I feed my dog, like my dad shot three deer this year. Um, He's an avid hunter and he sawzalled off all the ribs, put them in a box of dry <laughs> ice and mailed them to me. And my dogs get a deer, a raw meaty deer rib <laughs> every meaty couple days. That's oh, amazing. Love it. And that's part of it for me too. Like, oh, I just love feeding my dogs whole foods and getting to see like they love it. Um. I have not personally ever like, I, I I don't know, like there's so many claims out there that it's, I don't know. And the thing is, we're not vets, we're not nutritionists. So yeah, yeah I think our nuanced kind of like, ah, talk to your vet sort of response <laughs> is the most responsible thing that Ursa and I can do. So if you really want to know more, we're not the place to go for it. Anyway, this is not our specialty. Yeah, yeah. I get a lot of, of questions from clients and I always tell them like, you really should just talk to your vet. <laughs> Or yeah. find a, a canine nutritionist, you know. But again, like you, oh, you have to look at where the expertise is coming from, um, you know. So that's, I think that's just yeah. important. Like, ask for sources. And there's a there's a huge variety in your options out there. You know, whether you're doing pre-made raw, which can be really expensive, or formulating your own. And I know some people who, you know, they've dedicated so much time and energy into learning how to formulate a diet and source it and you know they do that and i honestly look at most of those people and say you know yeah you're probably doing it right and then for every one of those though there's a bunch of people who just like you know feed some steamed broccoli and white chicken breast (laughs) right and and say they're feeding raw like "Mm -mm, that's uh, that's not good enough Um, yeah yeah it's i mean like i said it's a lot of work it is a ton of work and it's expensive yeah that's not a fit for everyone's lifestyle so and it takes a ton of freezer space. That was honestly like one of my biggest things um, when I lived in my apartment was I couldn't fit a chest freezer in my studio apartment. Um, <laughs> so there was just no way to feed raw. Like it right. just wasn't really possible because anything that was bulk that was affordable required a chest freezer. Yeah. I would just hate for anyone to feel guilty not feeding their dog raw because they don't have the time or the resources or the, the money to do so. Um, you know, that's kind of my main thing is, you know, it's not a, it's not abusive to not feed your dog raw. You're not poisoning them. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, I know my, my lab, Maya, who died a year and a half ago now, mm-hmm. um, she made it to 15. She was a lab and she was fed, you know, my dad got her the cheapest bag of food he could get at Walmart every time for mm-hmm. her whole life. Mm-hmm. My childhood dog lived to be 17 on IMS. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, I know that's anecdotal, but. Right. um, Obviously. Yeah. Um, Okay. But this is a dog behavior podcast, not a dog nutrition podcast. So if you really want more nutrition, we're not the place to find it anyway. (laughs) All right. Well, so I think we are qualified to speak on our next topic and you're up. And it is actually a question from Caroline, one of our patrons um, about invisible fences. So what we think about invisible fences. I don't like them. 
<laughs> that's my, that is my like immediate hot take. All right, next. <laughs> God, we could be so fast, but we, we could. Won't. We really should do just like a buzzer round of like yes or no. <laughs> that would be. We do like a list of like a hundred. Like yes, no, yes, no, yeah. and then like, that would be fun. Sometime, if you're listening, go subscribe to Patreon. It's three bucks a month. It's nothing. Send us as many hot button topics as you can, and we'll just do a buzzer round of like yes we like it no we don't <laughs> yeah and try to give us you know like not just like shot callers or you know like stuff where you yeah. already know the answer right know. you could do like yeah. basenjis <laughs> basenjis i don't want to offend any, any owners of any breeds out there though <laughs> we'll really have <laughs> we'll get a bunch of angry reviews then oh no i don't want that um, okay i'm gonna restart my timer for invisible fences so we we know you don't like them. So start from there. <laughs> okay, generally don't like them. Um, as with anything that applies a shock or vibration, I am really concerned about you know the welfare of the dog. You know we're not going through the humane hierarchy if this is the first thing we reach for. Um, obviously, it is possible to get to this um, through the humane hierarchy, um, but often that's not the case. I think the only times when I have talked to someone and been like, you know, this sounds like an approach that we could take is when there's an HOA that does not allow any fences. That's kind of the only time where I would say like, because they're so expensive um, and Mm. they take a lot of upkeep. You've got to dig up your whole yard, blah, blah, blah. But in those cases, you know, why why is your dog out in the backyard unattended off leash? is generally my thing because it's not a physical barrier. Your dog can still run through it. Um, There was one study that is quite problematic that I will link to in the show notes anyway, that seems to find that aggression near property lines can be elicited through the use of invisible fences. It's problematic Mm -hmm. in that it only had five dogs. I think all of them were neutered male golden retrievers. Um, (laughs) So obviously not a great sample size. Um, But Anecdotally, that is something that I think I've heard of. I've seen um, that because the dog approaches the sidewalk, gets shocked, moves back. So whenever there's something that appears that causes the dog to approach the sidewalk, it can elicit extra aggression. That makes sense to me. Um, Your dog can still run through the shock. Just because he runs through the shock doesn't mean he's going to come back. Um, And most of them are set up not to shock the dog as the dog comes back. That's decent, I guess, but not good enough for me. I also was just, I have a Google Scholar alert set up for dog training, um, and I get a lot of patent um, updates, and there was one that just came out that is an app that allows you to create a virtual bubble around wherever you are with an electronic fence of some sort, and I am super concerned uh, something like that, where your dog cannot, like, at least if it's your actual your actual property, you can do, pro- you could set up flags, you could do boundary training, you yeah. can like, go through the whole thing and potentially make it something that I'm not freaked out by. Oof, I hate that. Good Lord. But being able to just bring it with you on your phone and then like no. say that if your dog is more than 50 feet from you, they get one warning beep and then a shock. Nope. Hate it. That's just, that's just, just so <laughs> not fair to your dog. Even with even with the warning beep, you know, blah blah blah. I know that they try to make these things sound okay, but like I'm not okay with that. It's a no for me, dog. Yeah. All right, your turn. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think you've said 
just about everything. I want to add that um, I, I very much dislike um, invisible fences for the reasons that you stated. I think that they're, they're not clear. They're, they're not generally secure. They can teach dogs to associate a shock with an oncoming trigger. Um, I've had clients who installed underground fences and then their dogs became afraid to go into the backyard. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that I hear often is, oh, well, you know, so I lived on a farm and I used electric fencing. Um, and I'll hear people say like, well, you use electric fencing, so it's hypocritical to be against invisible fencing. And I could not disagree more because with a physical fence that has a hot wire on it, you, the animal knows exactly what physical object creates Mm -hmm. the aversive sensation. It's not strapped to their neck. Um, you know, it's not, it's not on their body. And it's not shocking a different part of the body than what they can, they associate with a boundary. So if you touch your hand to an electric fence, you get shocked by the electric fence on your hand. You touch your nose to the electric fence, you get shocked by the electric fence on your nose. It's not a shock on a different part of your body that's not associated with anything physical. So I think for most animals, it takes one or two times with a physical electric fence to go, okay, that fence bites. Um, whereas with an invisible fence, the barrier, especially if they're not thoroughly trained on it. And a lot of times, even if they are, the boundaries are, they're, they're not clear. Um, you know, it's, well, do I have to be on this side of this bush or on that side, or can I be passing the bush or what? And then what about over here? And does it angle this way? It's not clear. And, and I'll, I'll also hear the argument of like, um, oh, well, it's like when you touch a hot stove, you learn not to touch the stove again. It's not because I don't walk around with a hot stove strapped to my neck that burns me when I cross an invisible barrier. Like it's just, it is not the same thing. So, you know, to summarize, I know my time's up, not a fan at all. I would actually rather see somebody put up a wire, like an, a, 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 like a, a livestock fencing wire. Yeah, absolutely. Still not my favorite. Can I go over just like 30 seconds? Sure. Still not my favorite, okay. But um, I would rather see that. And honestly, I think that um, I would rather see a dog on a tether. Um, I would rather see them inside of an X pen. I would rather see them inside of a dog run that was built on the property, or I would rather see them on a long line with their owner out there with them. Any of those things uh, uh, instead of an uh, an underground fence, because those things are all more secure and less risk of fallout. Absolutely. I've got three quick things to add before we go. Just, okay. yeah, you know, of course I do. Um, I have <laughs> personally seen dogs that become fearful of the warning beep um, from this and then generalize it to a microwave. Um, that is not a fun behavior to have to deal with. Um, no. Super awful, in fact. Um, an electronic invisible fence still lets other things in. So the neighbor's yes. cat can still come onto your property um, the raccoons can still come in. I mean, both of those might be able to get over your random fence as well, but yeah. it lets other things in as well. So it is super. Other dogs that may or may not be dog friendly. The other thing I know I have personally experienced walking barley is watching a dog who I'm not sure if it's got an electronic fence involved or not. And I am not sure if this barking charging dog is going to stop or not. I, I mean, literally last week, um, I was watching one of my neighbor's dogs that I suspected might have an invisible fence and trying to decide if that dog was going to cross the barrier, cross the road, 
and come after Barley and I. Turns out he did not have an invisible fence um, mm-hmm. because he just kind of casually walked across what I suspected <laughs> was the barrier. <laughs> so he didn't charge through it. And he, yeah. So yeah, and I, I've also heard of some dogs learning to test it, you know, seeing if it's on by walking up and seeing if they hear the warning beep. Um, and if yeah. they do or not, then they just keep going or not mm-hmm. based on the situation. So they're just, ugh, they're super problematic. And again, they're so expensive. Yeah, I understand that some <laughs> HOAs don't allow fences, but that uh, you don't need to let your dog hang out unattended in your backyard anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Lo- everyone who lives in an apartment doesn't have that luxury either. And I, I mean, God, it would suck to have a house where you couldn't put up a fence and just let your dog out to go potty. I get that. Um, but you've got other options. Yeah. Again, there are dog runs, there are tieouts, there are yeah, lots mm-hmm. of other options that don't involve the disaster that is underground invisible fencing. <laughs> All right. So we're on to our next one, right? Yep. And I think I'm up. Um, you are. And my topic is Nylif or nothing in life is free. So nothing in life is free is a concept um, that basically says that in order to train your dog, um, you want them to learn that they have to do a behavior for everything they get from you. So uh, whether that's treats, um, attention, go outside, you know, get the leash clipped on, whatever it is, um, you're going to train them to um, offer a behavior before or, or ask them to do a behavior before they get something from you. And the idea is it teaches your dog kind of to defer to you for what they want. And um, I'll be honest, um, when I first started training, uh, it was it was the thing. I, I mean, this was probably about tw- well about twenty years ago now, and um, and I was definitely a proponent of this because it seems like a really ethical way to um, get a compliant, obedient dog. Uh, I know the positive reinforcement based training world and myself along with it has kind of come away from this idea, um, you know, within the last probably five to ten years. And um, Kathy Sadeo even wrote the book. Uh, plenty in life is free. Um, and so I don't really use it anymore. I don't talk to clients about it anymore. It's not something that I ever really did with my own dogs. (laughs) Um, even when I was coaching clients to do it. And I think it's because, you know, I sort of give myself a pass with my own dogs because I know how to deal with problems that come up, but clients who are, who are looking to deal with, um, issues, it can be a helpful jumping off point for them to approach their relationship with their dog. But I actually feel like it's harmful or not, maybe not harmful. That's not the right word. That's too strong. I don't think it's beneficial to have that kind of relationship with your dog. It's not the relationship that I think is ideal to have with your kids or your partner or your friends or, or, or anyone really to say like, well, I'm only going to do this for you if you do something for me. Mm-hmm. And I think our dogs are no exception. I think it's fine to give your dog treats and attention, even if they're not doing something for you. Um, I don't think that they should be required to do a behavior to go outside, to go to the bathroom, to meet their basic needs, for example. Um, I don't make my dogs sit before they get their food bowl. Like, they they just get food. Like, nobody makes me do anything before I get to eat. I mean, I have to cook for myself, but that's a little <laughs> different. So, um, so I, I just, I think it's a little too stern. There are definitely some dogs maybe like really demanding or really pushy dogs that can benefit from some periods of this, of Mm -hmm. teaching them that like, oh, you have to, you actually have to exercise some self-control. You can't just barrel through life, you know, and expect things to happen for you. 
but overall as a lifestyle of living with your dog, I think it's too much. It's not necessary. I think it's totally nobody needs to feel guilty or like they're spoiling their dog because they give them attention without asking the dog for a behavior first. So that's my take on that. I think it's your turn now. Yeah. I mean, I think overall you've nailed all the big points that I wanted to make. The The only one I was going to add was the one you got to last, which is, I will say, I still recommend nothing in life is free-esque procedures <laughs> for dogs that are very, very pushy, lots of demand barking, really impulsive dogs that, you know, it's like anything that you have that they potentially want, they are all over you for it. And they you know, are, yeah, just are very, very impulsive. Um, I, that's the one case, you know, I don't recommend it for my aggression cases. I don't recommend Mm -mm. it for anxiety. I, you know, Mm -mm. I, you know, even with my little baby puppy Niffler, um, you know, I, I haven't started implementing anything like that with him. You know, we do more smart times 50. So C mark and reward training, which is what Kathy Tisadeo suggested in Plenty and Life is Free, which is, you know, instead of forcing your dog to comply with a, something in order to get what your dog wants or needs, when you see your dog doing something you like, you reward it um, 50 times a day, which is where the 50 comes from. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of that with Niffler as he ages and goes into adolescence. I expect I will do some sort of like sit to say please exercises. Honestly, part of the reason I haven't right now is because his sit isn't on cue yet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, ultimately, like, yeah, I do want him to learn to wait before I open the door or to hold still when I put the leash on or things like that. But there's a difference between kind of like functional, I need you to sit still right now, or I need you not to jump all over me while I'm trying to put your food bowl down. Mm-hmm. And like extremely regimented uh, relationship because they're like, I want to be able to cuddle my dog. I want Barley to be able to come up and lick my face and, you know, Mm -hmm. ask for a chest scratch and me to just provide that because I love him. You know, that's the point of having a dog for me. (laughs) Right. Um, So, you know, again, it's not completely off the table for me as part of another treatment plan for a period of time certainly not at its most extreme because if you take it to its most extreme it's kind of like leaving the dog in the crate at all times uh, unless you're actively implementing the procedure that's super unethical i don't think most people who recommend that that's what they mean anyway no i don't think so either i think we've got the broad points with nylef yeah i agree all right i'm glad you brought up smart times 50 because i love that approach i love it yeah, everyone should do it. <laughs> if you can do three, I, I mean, I know we already did our like five things we teach our, our every dog episode, but like, if you just do smart, if if you can only do one thing, do smart times fifty. If you can do three, do smart times fifty hand targets and mat training. Yep, I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, agree. Smart times fifty is almost all of what I did with Zip. Like, I'd never, I, I realized years into my relationship with her, my border collie that I'd never taught her to lay down on cue because I just didn't care. Like she, I just like, I, I used smart times 50 to shape her behavior in a way that like she learned contextual cues about like, Oh, they're eating dinner. I'm going to go lay down. Like I just, it didn't, mm-hmm. it, it didn't come up a lot. I lived on a farm and you know, we, Perfect. I, I'm, I'm not a super strict guardian anyway, but yeah, I, I had a, a laugh to myself where I was like, I'm a dog trainer who hasn't even taught, my own dog to lay down on cue, but she's an exceptionally well-behaved dog. Yeah. Yeah. We got everything across you needed. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all right, and you're up. Um, and our next question is also from our patron, Caroline. And she asked about punishment. And she basically said, when might punishment be on the table? So, for example, when is it? when might it be appropriate to use physical corrections in a training plan? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I've got my timer going. Um, I think any time where you've gone through the full humane hierarchy um, and have genuinely done every step, um, punishment may potentially be on the table. Um, so that is, you know, you've started with environmental management, making sure the dog is happy and healthy. You've worked through um, positive re management, positive reinforcement to train behaviors that you want. And then there's training of alternative behaviors. And then oof, I don't have this totally memorized, but then there's a pause and consult with other people before you start going on to things like negative reinforcement. Um, and then positive punishment is, again, after consulting with people, um, with other trainers, <laughs> not not Facebook. Um, <laughs> Thank you so much for saying that. Good God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Never crowdsource your training advice from Facebook. And I, I so I, did I miss anything in the humane hierarchy there? I, I, I it's kind of the broad strokes. I don't think so. If I can be completely honest, I was actually writing down a note that I didn't want to forget to bring up. So I, I trust that you got all of it. Okay. No worries. Um, but that, close enough that people get the basic idea. Please, you know, consult the actual humane hierarchy beforehand. Um, don't just like go off of what I spitballed in a podcast. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's that's the party line, at least for punishment. For me personally, I have also resorted to, I, and, and I've never put it into my training plan. I have used some sort of physical punishment as an interrupter when safety is on the line. So I'm trying to think of an example recently. I mean, I know I've probably told the example before on the podcast, but once Barley, um, he was on a bungee waist leash and I did not grab far enough out at an intersection. This was before he had learned to wait at intersections. I lunged out and grabbed him by the tail and hauled him back from an intersection once. Um, uh, that certainly positively punished his uh, rushing into intersections behavior. It also interrupted it in the moment. It also was very important for his safety in that moment. Um, and it was not a training uh, plan for me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I know, I, I mean, I know with Niffler, um, you know, I've interrupted him by clapping my hands at him and moving towards him if he's chewing on something inappropriate. And then I come and redirect him towards something else. Um, but yeah, definitely the party line for me is... If if you've gone through the steps of the humanity hierarchy, you've consulted with trusted people, um, and you can count Ursa and I among that. If you feel like you are at that point in your training plan, let's hop on a call. Um, you can either pay us or you can join as a member of Patreon. And you actually, if you join at the highest level, you get a video chat with one of us, um, and we'll help you kind of decide whether or not it seems like it's on the table. So, predatory <clears throat> behaviors, I think, are the ones where I see it most often. Yeah. I'll leave us with that cliffhanger is where <laughs> that is where I think I see it where I'm kind of like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm not going to argue with you too much on that. I, I, that is one of the places where I do see that, um, that I, I want to argue with at least. So I'll leave us with that cliffhanger and Ursa can do whatever she wants to do for her two minutes. <laughs> do whatever I want to do. So I generally <laughs> agree with you. I, I do think, I will say, I think as, Positive reinforcement based trainers were afraid of of using the word punishment or admitting 
to, to using punishment, but I use punishment in my training. Um, I would say that primarily I'm using negative punishment, which means like I'm doing reverse timeouts or I'm taking the dog out of a situation. Like I'm either removing myself or removing something the dog wants. And um, I'm really comfortable with using that in training if um, management has been sorted out. So I think resorting heavily to punishment is a failure of management or a lack of management because it means that the dog is being allowed to practice the unwanted behavior. So somewhere in this process, the environment is setting them up to trigger that behavior and we need to stop that first. Um, I, I also think that you have to be reasonably sure that the dog is fluent in how to make the right choice in a given situation before you even consider using even negative punishment, which I think arguably, but but arguably is a pretty mild form of punishment. And, and I think that the only scenario really that I'm super comfortable, you know, saying like, okay, um, yeah, you know, we could, we could probably apply something here is proofing where the dog is extremely fluent. They've had lots and lots of practice with the right behavior. They understand the context, they understand the expectations and you want to set up the environment in such a way that it teaches the dog that if they make the wrong choice, there's going to be a consequence for it. Having said that, I don't like or feel comfortable using physical punishments, physical aversives, leash correction, shock, um, those sorts of things, spraying the dog in the face, whatever. Um, I don't think that's a kind thing to do to anyone. Um, and so, again, I think that my obviously, God, we could do a whole episode on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the learner determines the aversive. I know I'm out of time. The learner <laughs> determines the aversive. So what's aversive to one dog might be nothing to another dog. So you can't just blanket say that, like, this is the worst kind of punishment. But I think that we can generally agree that physical aversives are extremely unpleasant. Uh, that's why we have a nervous system. And so my choice would be to avoid doing that to a dog at all costs, because I, I just don't think that's a kind way to teach. Um, so I think removing things from the environment, using the consequence of like, the dog was trying to get this, but oh, it went away because they mm-hmm. made the wrong choice is generally um, generally less aversive and generally less risky. So that's my yeah, spiel. I think that's a good generality. Um Ooh, it's hard to get through that in two minutes. Good Lord. I know. So I know. Much. I actually really want to circle back. Because um, it, it relates to the e-collar discussion that we had in our last episode where I brought up, you know, having used one um, when working as a conservation dog handler. Um, and one of the things that I know Ursa and I talked about when I was consulting with her about, you know, doing a gut check about this training plan because I was feeling really uncomfortable with it. And as I said in the last episode, in retrospect, I think I had other options on the table. But part of the thinking as I was talking it through with Ursa as well as with some of um, my bosses in the detection dog organization was that what I was facing was a dog that could be recalled off of the prairie dogs and could be told to leave it and the dog would comply. But the behavior the dog then exhibited was to come back to me for a reinforcer. And if they did not get the reinforcer, they went right back to chasing prairie dogs. So our goal was and we uh, the goal was to get the dog to ignore the prairie dogs and continue searching so with that particular setup it felt like the logical or the what we kind of needed was not something taught with positive reinforcement 
because we needed the dog to actually be ignoring something and not returning to us for reinforcement. In mm -hmm. retrospect, here's what I would have done instead. And I'm I'm sorry that we are going to go too long on this, but I've been thinking about this a lot and I think it's I think it's important. So what I think I would rather do instead, and in the future I expect to end up in this situation is again, um, is setting up intentional situations where um, my dog is on a long line, they are near prairie dogs or other potential prey items, high distraction items, and I set them up in a really high find environment where they could be exposed to a prairie dog running down a hole, and then the next hole they check has what they're looking for in it. And we can reinforce that really, really heavily because I think if we build up the reinforcement history for the find, make ignoring mm. the prey item easy, and then build that up, eventually we will be able to teach the dog to ignore the prairie dogs or whatever the prey item is because mm -hmm. the reinforcement history outweighs it. What we were running into was that the prairie dogs were so salient and we were in <laughs> such a low find environment of course the dogs wanted to go for the prairie dogs. And again, in that situation, I'm not going to say that what we were doing with those shot callers was horribly unethical or abusive. I think in retrospect, personally, when I am in charge of the training plan going forward, I will do it the way I just described instead. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> That's really interesting. I'm glad that yeah. you were able to find like a, a better solution for that and i think i, mean, that, I haven't done it yet so you know no guarantees yeah, it works but even even an attempt at a better solution i think that that's you know the responsibility is on us as trainers for those times where it seems like you know the application of positive punishment is the best solution i think it is our responsibility to try to come up with more creative solutions that we don't have to get there yeah i mean the other reality is working in a prairie dog town you can manage a 50 foot long line because there's nothing for it to get caught on yeah. Um, and if you know how to read your dog well as a detection dog handler, you should be able to tell when they're in scent and trying to pull you towards scent versus when they're in prey drive right. and chasing. Um, and finally, okay, the, the point I originally was going to make before I went too far down that uh, prairie dog hole was that... <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> so to speak. Part of why I felt okay going to such an extreme form of punishment that I, you know, I spend my life trying to teach people how not to do um, is because our outcome target behavior was not one that was easily taught with positive reinforcement. Again, I think I've come up with a solution that would work, but you know, the dogs we were working with did have a really solid recall and did have a really solid leave it. And we were mm -hmm. able to use those things, but that, that still resulted in disruption of the search. And the goal was to avoid disrupting the search. Um, right. So I don't know, that was very long-winded, um, but I hopefully it was useful. No, I, I I think it's, well, I think it's fascinating. And I, I think it leads to a broader discussion. I think that was probably based on our time. That's probably going to be our last um, little mm -hmm. hot take topic for the day. So I just want to mention that um, I, I, and I know you don't have any opposition to using animals to do jobs for us, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it is our responsibility as you know, caretakers and as as stewards of these animals that are working for us, to balance getting the job done with the emotional and physical welfare of the animal that's doing the job, and I think that you know, I, what I love about you, Kayla, is that you're always try you're always looking for ways to do that better. You know, like yes, you have the expectations and you have uh, boundaries and limitations around you know 
the job getting done and getting done properly, mm-hmm. but you're also always looking for ways to improve the, you know, your relationship with the animal that's doing it and, and their quality of life and their understanding of what's expected and their, um, their experience doing the job. And so I think that's really awesome. Like, that's so cool that you're always thinking Thank about you. that. And oh yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's amazing. Like I, I really, really respect you for that. And I think that that's that your goals, your, you are goals in terms of, you know, that balance between yes, using animals to do jobs for us, but also ensuring that their experience is as good as we can make it and as clear as we can make it and as positive as we can make it. So. Yeah. And I, I thank you for saying that. Um, it means a lot. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been helpful for me in that is that a, I came from this place where, you know, I've spent so much time working so hard on positive reinforcement before coming to the working animal world. Mm-hmm. B, I know I'm a public figure. So mm-hmm. as soon as I was in a situation where I had a shot collar um, remote in my hand, I was like, this is going to come out eventually and it's going to be weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, that made me really nervous and that pushes me to really think about it because I am so public on the positive reinforcement side of things. Um, and then, right. C, I almost said three, but I think I was doing ABCs, not one, two, three. I was handling my own dog, um, who I love dearly more than life itself. I think had I been handling exclusively other working dogs, it would be much easier for me to write it off. But as soon as I was in a situation where I was strapping a shock collar onto my own dog, who I love and I swore I would never do this to him, that made me think really, really hard. Um, and that I had used shock collars while working other working dogs for about six months before the first time I put one on Barley. I've only used it on Barley in that one situation that I've described. Um, so he's probably been exposed to it three or four times. I was really unhappy with what I saw out of it. And it hit me harder emotionally because it was my own dog. Um, mm. And I don't, I, I don't know if if I would be thinking so hard about it and so creatively about it, if I had only ever been handling other working dogs, because it's so much easier emotionally to write that off versus your own pet. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to share my embarrassing punishment story? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when I first got Zip, my border collie, um, my husband and I were caretakers for a horse farm outside of Denver. And, um, she was extremely reactive to horses and would chase them, which was no good. Um, most of the horses on the property were the, belonged to the, uh, lady who owned the the place, but one of them was mine. And I wanted her to be okay with horses because it was my life at the time. And I had a horse and, you know, I, I rode and was around them. So I, I had a day off work and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work with her on reactivity, um, with horses. So I, you know, get my treats and my clicker and I, um, leash her up and we walk up to the front pasture where my horse conveniently was grazing right on the other side of the fence. And so I spent some time doing some engage, disengage and, and marking and treating zip for looking at my horse and walking back and forth past her at a distance and walking towards her and away from her at a distance. And so finally, um, we get to a point where we're, we're right on the other side of the fence from where my horse Scarlet was standing and Zip is sitting there and she's doing really well. She's, you know, paying attention to me. She's casually looking at the horse. She's, she's okay. And unexpectedly my horse turns and puts her head over the fence 
And that was way too much for Zip, like way beyond what she was ready to handle at that point. And that, of course, is the risk of working with live animals is that you like you don't know what they're going to do. So and and this was my fault. Like she was too close. Obviously, I didn't expect my horse to turn and put her head over the rail. I thought she was just going to keep eating. Um, and so out of the corner of my eye, I see Zip sort of coil her body up to lunge up at my horse mm-hmm. with her mouth open like she's going to just bite her on the face. And I whip my hand over and my intention was to block her. Like I just wanted to block her from being able to jump up and bite my horse. But I'm, I ended up karate chopping her in the side of the head. <laughs> and I, mean, I felt awful. I felt ter- so zip is an extremely sensitive, needy, um, herding breed mix. She's like a border collie, shelty cattle dog, Aussie thing. And she's like, so tender and so sensitive and like just a very soft dog. And so she just, she screamed and like flopped to the ground and was groveling like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then I was like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And so I like threw myself down on the ground next to her and scooped her up and was like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. But she did not look at a horse sideways after that. (laughs) Not off leash. Not at a distance, not up close. I could ride in the pasture with her loose. Um, And while, as you mentioned earlier, punishment was not in my training plan. That was never my intention. And especially that kind of punishment. I don't hit dogs and I don't hit them in the head. Um, I I like, I just don't do that. (laughs) But, you know, I misjudged and ended up kind of karate chopping her on the side of the face. And whatever, whatever that was, whatever that aversive provided, it met those criteria of like aversive enough that she wanted to avoid it. Um, it happened, it was consistent and it happened immediately. The timing was just right. Um, and so like when people, you know, especially positive reinforcement trainers say, well, punishment doesn't work. That is not true. Punishment can work. Right. It's just, we have to talk about all of these other things surrounding like not just does it work, but is it ethical and what's the fallout and what's the risk? And mm-hmm. if you're doing it more than, you know, you need to, what, you know, what then, but that's, that's sort of my embarrassing punishment story. <laughs> I never, I never intended to use punishment, but by some sheer stroke of luck, I ended up doing it, like it ended up happening just right that it, it like, it was unpleasant for my dog, but it also ended up with an outcome that, you know, yeah. And it doesn't sound like you got fallout. <sighs> no. Or no, no, like discernible fallout where now she's scared of the pasture or scared of you. No. Of- Miraculously, um, she, I, I never detected any kind of fallout from her. She was um, friendly with horses from that point forward um, and, and never showed, I mean, smart about them, like wasn't going to necessarily run mm-hmm. underneath one or, or you know, whatever. actually smarter than she was before because prior to that she was happy to chase a horse and potentially get kicked in the head so she you know whatever whatever happened whatever planets aligned in that moment um they aligned just right for her to be able to have a safe relationship with horses going forward but you know honestly i if i had to go back and choose if i if i had the hindsight to say like oh crack your dog in the head one time and your problem solved or keep working on it for I would choose to keep working on it. I would, I would choose not to have done that because I I don't feel good about it. And I didn't feel good that it happened. Um, And it's, and it was, it's not a a training method. It was an accident that turned out. Okay. So um, yeah, but 
<laughs> there you have it. There's my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad you ended on that note. Cause I think, you know, I think when I'm being, when I'm being my most honest self, I think there, it is worth a discussion of, you know, if you knew that you could set your dog across a soccer field from a deer, shock your dog once and mm -hmm. your dog would never take off after a prey item ever again and you wouldn't get fall out you know what i think i'd probably do it mm. i think i probably would if i'm being 100 percent honest yeah. um but i don't feel confident enough that i won't get fall out i don't feel confident enough i wouldn't have to do it over and over again and mm -hmm. you know it's just i yeah it doesn't work for me but if i'm being super honest yeah there are times where i you know because you, you do hear these stories where it does work that well well and i think that the problem is that a lot of trainers who rely heavily on punishment frame things that way of like oh it's this one moment of discomfort and then you have this perfect dog that you've always wanted and i feel that's disingenuous mm -hmm. i really do because that's not usually the way it works out it usually has to happen multiple times. There's usually some fallout associated. And that's if you know what you're doing and you're doing it exactly right and your timing is impeccable. Yeah. And I mean, even with Barley, when I was doing the prairie dog stuff, I saw him act at, like he he started biting at his collar. He mm. seemed to think that there was a bug involved. He got mm -hmm. nervous with the prairie dog holes. He didn't want mm -hmm. to search. His tail went down. His enthusiasm was down. It didn't yeah. take much to get it back because he's a surprisingly resilient little border collie. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even with impeccable timing and, you know, blah, 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 I saw a lot more fallout than I was comfortable with. Um, and I yeah. was being pretty soft on him because I didn't want to be doing it. Um, pretty soft from a, a shot collar trainer's perspective. Uh, <laughs> obviously not, you know. At the end of the day, we're inflicting these things, good or bad, on animals that don't can't really consent to what's happening and they don't understand the trade-off. You know, Zip didn't understand like one moment of discomfort and you're going to have, you know, this I guess freedom, so to speak, to be around horses or and dogs don't understand like one moment of discomfort and you have freedom to go on off-leash hikes or whatever. And so, you know, they they don't have the ability to consent to that trade-off. And I think that it's our responsibility to be really, really careful about the trades that we make on their behalf of saying yeah. like, oh, well, it's just a little bit of discomfort. Well, we're not the ones suffering it. And you can say, I put the shot color on my hand and I turned it up and whatever all day long, your experience isn't your dog's experience. And so to say like, well, I am, I am insisting that they endure this on, you know, and so that we can get to this point you know, you're making that trade on behalf of your dog. And so I think it's, we owe it to them to be as conscientious and as uh, careful with those things as we possibly can, because we really don't know how it's affecting them internally. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what I always, always, always have in the back of my mind. And that includes all the way down to positive reinforcement training techniques. So, you know, like, what is the dog actually experiencing here? Like, what is the perception of what I'm asking them to give up in exchange to get something else? Um, because just because you say you're doing positive reinforcement doesn't mean that you're doing it in a way that's not aversive to your dog. So, oh, yeah. You know. I mean, every time I train Barley with a ball, I think I am operating as much in negative punishment 
and well, negative, well, God, I don't know. <laughs> he is so desperate about the ball that anytime he gets it quote unquote wrong and does not get the ball when he thinks he That's should, immersive. That's it immersive. is devastating to him. Yeah. You know, it is such a high level reinforcer for him that mm-hmm. I have to be super careful with it. And Sarah Strumming had a great podcast episode about mm-hmm. when punishment or when positive reinforcement is coercive. And I think this mm-hmm. is um, a big enough topic that we will link to her episode. But I also, I think it would be fun to take, do our own take. Maybe we get Sarah on to talk about it. Maybe not. I mean, I've definitely had clients, dogs that were so obsessed with food that any withholding of food just caused them to fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's aversive. That's not pleasant. That's not, we're not operating strictly within the realm of positive reinforcement at that point. And I think we, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves about that. So. Yeah. And especially when implementing heavy management um, Mm -hmm. to where the animal doesn't have access to anything good unless you're in training then that's not really a choice right right it's it can be coercive. you know if the choice is be in your crate or sit quietly at my feet um <laughs> and eat your dinner that's not really a choice after 20 hours in the crate or even four hours in the crate positive reinforcement methods can definitely be used in a coercive way um for sure i think that the the intention matters but the outcome also matters so Totally. So anyway, humane hierarchy. <laughs> Let's just do that. Yeah, humane hierarchy. Absolutely. If if you take nothing else out of this episode, just go learn the humane hierarchy. Or or if you already know it, then you know, stick with it. <laughs> yeah. And always revisiting it. I'm I'm always going back to it and you know, yeah. rethinking about it, re- redoing it. Um, well my puppy has woken up and has been chewing on my finger for that. the last couple minutes. I know it's really cute from here. <laughs> Very cute. Um, and he's being about as cuddly as he gets. Um, oh, all right. Well, you're not so bad. Uh, well, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been, this got a little heavy at the end, but hopefully people took some, some good tidbits away from it. And, uh, you know, we have enough to do like a part three and a part four, I think. So. Oh, absolutely. Cause we don't, we haven't even published and gotten more input yet, but we definitely yeah. have enough for a part three. Um, oh yeah. So make sure you guys subscribe to Canine Conversations wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review since we haven't gotten any since January 2020. Um, <laughs> you can find episode notes, bonus materials, all the links we mentioned at canineconvos.com. You can support the podcast at patreon.com for as little as three bucks a month and you get to submit questions to each of us for every episode. Um, you can also contact us at hello at canineconvos.com and it's always canine all spelled out. We would love to hear from you. I am Kayla Fratt from Journey Dog Training, based in Missoula. It's been good to talk to you guys. And uh, Ursa, go ahead. <laughs> I'm Ursa Akery. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training in Denver, Colorado. You can find us online at canismajortraining.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. <laughs>